0: Chapter three, The Trumps. So chapter three is obviously one of my favorite chapters in the whole book. This is when we will be introduced to all of the brothers and sisters depicted on a deck of cards. It's such an important chapter. Zelazny is moving quite quickly still. Chapter three will be about 4,500 words. Chapter two was 3,800 words, and chapter one was 2,300 words. So He's still moving quite quickly, but the chapters are getting a little bit longer. Here, Corwin wakes up in the morning, and the sister's gone, and he has kind of the run of the house. So he returns to the library. Uh, He tries to make friends with the dogs, and you get a bit of a humorous moment where he says, quote, I tried to make friends with him, but it was like exchanging pleasantries with a state trooper who signaled you to pull off the road, end quote. So some of that Zelazny humor coming through. Anyway, he enters the library and he starts snooping around. And, you know, this is what I would call Corwin the sleuth. This is when we're sort of getting the hands-on detective Corwin. You know, we've had Corwin the interrogator so far, with the warden at the hospital and with Flora. And we've had Corwin the tough guy who sort of roughs you up. And now we're getting for the first time some real detective work. Remember, it's still a mystery story. He's trying to figure out what's going on. He still doesn't know who he is, but he hasn't really studied any physical evidence so this chapter is kind of the dusting of the proverbial prince, if you will. So he's in the library. He's looking around. He's trying to find something that might jog his memories. He's flipping through books. Uh, he, he realizes that he has operated on people in the past, but, you know, he doesn't think he's an actual surgeon. He finds a sword that's hanging on the wall, and he takes it off, and he kind of like practices with it. And he says, quote, yes, I could use the thing, end quote. So that's kind of weird. Is he a surgeon? Why does he know how to use a sword? He's still trying to jog his memories of the things he might have done in the past. And then he makes his way to Flora's desk. He starts rummaging through it. He pulls out all the drawers. And then he realizes in this really cool scene that, like, the bottom drawer, the back of it doesn't go all the way to the top. And so it's unusual. It stands out, and he kind of pulls the drawer out, and he finds the secret compartment fixed to the underside of the other drawer, and he opens it up, and he takes out a pack of playing cards. And, you know, here we have the introduction of the most significant, unusual object of meaning so far in the novel, and it's perhaps the most significant object of the entire series, the trumps of amber. So the trumps of amber make their way into the action, the lore, even into the title of a later book, The Trumps of Doom. And, you know, the idea of this supernatural family depicted on a set of playing cards was Zelazny's initial inspiration for the novel. We can look to Theodore Krellick's biography of Roger Zelazny for more context here. He says, quote, Zelazny's so interest in the tarot harkens back to an early career interest in psychology as a student of the works of Carl Jung, end quote. Crowley goes on to talk about how the archetypes of the tarot can be found throughout the series. Oberon is the emperor, Dworkin is the hermit. We'll see the tower in Bran's prison in the lighthouse of Cabra. You've got the wheel of fortune in Corwin's dream before he meets Dara. You have the Hanged Man and the Guns of Avalon and so forth. And Corwin starts laying the cards out on the desk, face down, by the way. And he starts turning them over one by one, and we come to understand that these are his brothers and sisters. Here's what Zelazny himself has to say about this moment. Quote, I tried to visualize the other family members It seemed like an awful lot of characters to bring on stage as the time approached to do something with them. I would have to stop invariably to describe each character. I thought it would be nice to have something like a family portrait gallery, with Corwin discovering it by wandering through his sister's house. Later on, when I introduced them to the story, they would be already described. I didn't entirely like the idea of a portrait gallery. It seemed too awkward. I hit upon the idea for using a deck of cards. They could have a special function that would be integrated into the story. That's when I got the notion to use them as a communication and transportation device. Once that emerged, I figured it would not only take place here in the mundane reality, but it was a parallel world situation where they would communicate across various levels of reality with the cards, and the next hundred pages or so suddenly developed in my mind." End quote. And it's so fun to read about Zelazny's process here, coming up with this world and so how it came to him organically, because so much of Amber is really rooted in this idea of the brothers and sisters depicted on the trump cards. So the first card that he flips over is the card for random who Corwin describes as, quote, a wily-looking little man with a sharp nose and a laughing mouth and a shock of straw-colored hair, end quote. And, you know, I will say it's perhaps too much of a coincidence that Random is the first card he turns over, since Random will be the very next character we're going to meet in the flesh. And the second card he turns over is for Julian, who again will be the very next character after random that we meet in the sequence of events that's about to unfold. And, you know, and it's just a bit of a coincidence that they're in that order. Selesny can hardly be blamed for this. He's throwing a lot of characters at us at this point in the story. And it's kind of helpful that the first couple of cards are the next characters we're going to meet. Still, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that random would be on top. We know that Flora hates him. Eric would be the first card. She's the one he's been communicating with the most. But nonetheless, he regards Julian, who he describes as having dark hair and blue eyes, and he's dressed in armor. So that's kind of cool, and you start to get the sense that these characters are dressed in costumes that are not of this world. And then he turns over Cain, who's dressed in satin, and his colors are black and green. And then he turns over the card for Eric. He says, quote, "...handsome by anyone's standards, his hair was so dark as to be almost blue. His beard curled around the mouth that always smiled, and he was dressed simply in a leather jacket and leggings, a plain cloak, high black boots... And he wore a red sword belt bearing a long silvery saber and clasped with a ruby. And his high cloak collar around his head was lined with red, and the trimmings of his sleeves matched it. End quote. And he goes on to say, quote, He it was, I was certain, that had tried to kill me on that day that I had almost died. End quote. And it's so great the way that Zelazny's setting this up. Eric is the antagonist. Corwin hates Eric. Eric hates Corwin. Corwin's got to defeat Eric and take the throne. And that's the underlying conflict that really powers Nine Princes in Amber. But, of course, we'll learn later that it wasn't Eric that tried to kill Corwin two weeks earlier in this automobile accident. It wasn't Eric who was responsible for that at all. And, you know, that's part, again, of the journey that Corwin's going to go on. Now, sure, Eric had almost killed Corwin centuries earlier, and we'll learn that, but it was kind of a mutual fight. And it could have turned out just the other way, with Corwin wounding Eric and banishing him in shadow, and so you know, it seems like they're at each other's throats. And in fact, you know, the antagonist in the whole series will turn out to be someone else. Eric turns out is a relatively decent defender of Amber. He's got a lot of duty, a lot of loyalty. But clearly, Zelazny's setting him up as the bad guy, the evil prince. He's trying to kill me. I'm going to kill him first. And if you think about it, the last time Corwin had his full memory as a Prince of Amber was centuries earlier, and the last thing he would have remembered as a Prince of Amber was Eric almost killing him. And so now, as he starts to get his memory back... It's top of mind. Anyway, he keeps going through the cards. He talks about Benedict, who's, quote, tall and dour, thin, thin of body, thin of face, wide of mind, end quote. And Benedict is like this character out of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, he says. and talks about his colors, and he's standing beside a horse with a lance. says he likes him. And then he turns over the card for himself, Corwin. Green eyes, black hair. His colors are black and silver. He's wearing a cloak. And he says, quote, the clasp at my neck was cast in the form of a silver rose, end quote. And this becomes a symbol for Corwin throughout the novels. And it sort of sets him up as something of a romantic. After that, there's Gerard. Corwin says he has an affection for him. Big guy, blue and gray colors. And then we get to Blaze, and he describes Blaze wearing this silk costume, and he talks about each of his rings being a different stone, and you sort of get the sense that this guy's like a fashion icon. And he's the first of the three redheaded children. And then there's Brand. And it's kind of fascinating. He says, quote, I both approved and disapproved, liked and was repelled by this one. His name was Brand, I knew. As soon as I laid eyes on him, I knew, end quote. And of course, Brand will turn out to be this quite complicated character. He's the actual antagonist. And it's important for the story that he does kind of like Brand, but also knows that he's trouble. And that's it for the brothers, and you know you get this like it was right and fitting that we all dressed this way and that we're done up this way on the cards, and you know Zelazny will use this phrase over and over again that you know this is how it was and it's right that it was this way, and you know all of this is befitting the tradition and the history, and sort of building this sense of lore. And next we get to the sisters. And again, the kind of sexism inherent in the novel rears its head here as the four princesses just get lumped into one shared paragraph while the men get a paragraph each. I will say in Zelazny's defense as he moves through the novels, it does get a bit better. Fiona emerges as a more interesting kind of puppet mistress who's pulling the strings and is wicked smart. And you'll have Dara burst onto the scene as this powerful but kind of nuanced antagonist playing both sides. And the female characterizations get a little more interesting. But for these first couple of novels, again, these roles just don't age well. And again, he's sequenced the princesses in the order that we're going to meet them in the storyline. So first there's Flora we've already met, and next up is Deirdre. And, you know, she'll be the character that we meet in chapter four. And then after that, Fiona, who's the third redhead, Blaze Brand Fiona. And finally, there's Luella, who has, quote, jade colored eyes, dressed in a shimmering gray and green with a lavender belt, and looking moist and sad. For some reason, I knew she was not like the rest of us, but she too was my sister, end quote. And you're like, okay, that's cool. Green hair, she's different. Not everybody is like fully human. And it's such a cool scene. And he talks about how he feels this both distance, but also closeness with all of these people. The cards are cold to the touch. Gives him a kind of magical quality. And then he says that he realizes that several are missing. And I think this is just kind of fascinating. My feeling is that it could be a little bit of a red herring. It's something Zelazny was playing with early on. It doesn't really hold up that well in the long run. Why does she have Trump's missing from her deck? You know, we'll find out that she tried to get back to Amber by walking instead of just using the card. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. She's here on a mission from Eric. She's very close to Eric. She's high up in his good graces. We'll see just in a couple of chapters that there's a bunch of full decks of trump cards sitting in the Library of Amber. And Zelazny makes a nod to this in Sign of the Unicorn when Corwin is sort of interrogating Flora about why she tried to walk back rather than using the trumps. And you feel like it's kind of him cleaning up his tracks as an author and that he was really trying to set up Flora as someone who was in trouble and just like wasn't allowed to have a full deck of cards. But again, it just doesn't fully hold up. Anyway, he puts the cards aside. He remembers the word Amber from the day before. It's super important. It's a place. And he sits there for a while. And eventually the maid, whose name is Carmella, enters and brings him lunch and so forth. And then finally the phone rings. Corwin answers it. And there's a man's voice and it's rapid and nervous and he's out of breath. And the guy on the other end of the phone is like, who am I talking to? Corwin says, quote, Corwin's the name, end quote. And there's sort of shocked silence. And he says, quote, is she still alive, end quote. And you're like, okay, again, stakes are higher. These people just want to kill each other all the time. Corwin's like, of course she's alive. Who am I talking to? And then the guy says, this is random. And now we've got another character coming onto the scene. And we remember random already from the previous description on the cards, a few paragraphs earlier. He's coming, he wants sanctuary. He's like, are you and Flora in it together? And Corwin's kind of like, I, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. So he says, well, I can't commit Flora, but you know, I'll protect you against her. And Random's like, "Quote, then you're good enough for me, man. I'm gonna try to make my way to New York now." End quote. And they hang up. And Corwin's like, "Okay, Random's in trouble." And we learn a little bit more about Random in this next paragraph. We know that he's shrewd. Corwin says, "You know, can't trust him farther than I can throw him." Kind of thing. He'd sell my corpse to a medical school. And again, just reinforcing that theme: trust no one sibling rivalries, but sort of taken to the nth degree. And what's going on with random? Who's he running from? No answers. But ultimately, he knows the answer is in amber, and he decides that he's going to continue to fake it. He says, quote, I'd have to pretend to the knowledge I didn't possess while piece by piece I mined it from those who had it. I felt confident I could do it. There was enough distrust circulating for everyone to be cagey. I'd play on that. I'd get what I needed, I'd take what I wanted, and I'd remember those who helped me and step on the rest. For this I knew was the law by which our family lived, and I was a true son of my father." End quote. And that's very lofty and again reinforcing that there's this lore and this history and these rules by which these people follow, and it's kind of primitive. Kill or be killed. And then all of a sudden, Flora comes home, and she comes into the library. Corwin says, good evening, but she's pissed, doesn't really respond. Instead, she walks across the room and pours herself a shot of Jack Daniels. Now, I think it's highly unlikely that someone who's A, loaded, and B, spent a bunch of time in France in the 18th century would be drinking this cheap American whiskey. No offense to Jack Daniels lovers, but... You know, this makes sense for someone like Random, but Flora, we know she's got refined tastes. I mean, she would have some amazing Irish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, maybe 100 years old. She'd have a whole case of it. You know, we know that she's got the Irish wolfhounds. She'd have some pretty high-end stuff, so it's just kind of weird that he says Jack Daniels. And then Corwin says to her, quote, you're missing some trumps, end quote. And it's very provocative, and he's kind of throwing it out there, and she gets all pissed off and reaches for the dog whistle, and he has to kind of calm her down. And then she starts to cry again. And then she says, quote, you blocked my way to Amber before you came here, didn't you? You knew I'd go to Eric, but I can't now, so I'll have to wait until he comes to me. Clever. You want to draw him here, don't you? He'll send a messenger, though. He won't come himself, end quote and it's pretty interesting that she talks about how her way was blocked and there was like these obstacles and it sort of ties in with this idea that there's some dark things out of shadow attacking amber and it's pretty clear zelazion doesn't have a strong idea of what these things could be but in retrospect we know that things have been attacking amber for several years we'll learn that oberon was worried about it and it really does play into the whole sort of chaos versus amber. And it's just so cool how Zelazny is planting these seeds because he can't possibly know in chapter three where this is all going to end up, but he's planting a lot of really great seeds. And then Flora says, quote, you're in exile too. That shows you weren't so smart, end quote. And I think that's kind of fascinating. I think it's fine to say that Corwin's in exile, don't know if exile is exactly the right word. He was banished by Eric. But is Flora in exile? It's kind of hard to believe. We know that she's got free, free reign, free Rome. She was in Kashva not that long ago. And again, we know that she's in favor with Eric, and she's on an assignment for him. But hard to believe that's really exile. Anyway, they have more back and forth. Corwin's still faking it. Then she starts to come around, realizes that he's gonna go for it, whatever it means. And then she says, quote, it had to be Eric Blazer you. You're the only ones with any guts or brains, but you'd removed yourself from the picture for so long that I counted you out of the running, end quote. And this is the first time we're getting this sense that there's a competition for something. Of course we'll find out that it's the throne of Amber. And it's kinda crazy that she doesn't bring up Oberon at all, the father. He hasn't been missing that long after all. And there are some, like Benedict, who aren't convinced he's dead and are pretty sure that he's still alive. There's just no mention of the father at all. It's just an assumption that Eric and Blaze and Corwin are competing for the throne. And she says, you've removed yourself from the picture, which, again, is very weird because she knows full well what happened. Eric and Corwin fought, and Eric was the one that sent Corwin off into shadow. He had the plague. He lost his memory. And she's been watching this whole time, so she knows full well that it wasn't a choice. He didn't remove himself. He was removed. Anyway, finally, the doorbell rings. Corwin says, quote, that would be brother random. He's under my protection, end quote. And then Flora thinks he's done something clever. And that's the end of chapter three. And just to add one more thing, I think it's kind of fascinating to think about this sequence in light of what we know. You know, Zelazny will spend a great deal of Sign of the Unicorn unpacking these first three or four chapters. As we know, Corwin will eventually get his memory back. He'll launch a failed attack on Amber. He'll be blinded and jailed for four years, escape lead a more successful attack on Amber, eventually wind up on top. And only then does he go back into this kind of detective mode and he'll question both Random and Flora about this very moment. Why was Flora watching Corwin? Why did she put him in the hospital? Who tried to kill Corwin? Why did Random show up and what was Random running from? But it'll be two books before we kind of come back to this. And meanwhile, Zelazny's just planting the seeds. And seeds is not the right metaphor. Zelazny himself said, quote, literature of necessity contains shadows. A writer or illustrator or movie maker never writes or draws or films an entire story. Shadows are necessary. A writer must select the salient features and imply a lot of things. What is left out forms the shadows and the readers or the viewers inferences from the implications the author has left are the part of the story that the the participant creates himself. Shadows are not in the picture or the words. Shadows are what lie between them, end quote. And how great that he's using the metaphor of shadows when shadows will become so important, to amber, the metaphysics of the whole universe, and how it all works, the power that the family has over shadows, etc. And here, he's going to be painting an awful lot of shadows, leaving a lot of questions open. And it's just so cool because he's just packing so much in here. And as the reader, you're just so engaged, and he's pulling you along at such a breakneck speed.